0: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Dr. Jennifer Stanley. I'm a clinical assistant professor in the departments of internal medicine and psychiatry at ECU Health. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Maxwell Miller, and we're going to be looking at two common and related atypical or second-generation antipsychotics, risperidone and paliperidone.
1: Thanks, Dr. Stanley. As you said, I'm Maxwell Miller. I'm a resident currently in my fourth year at ECU Health Medical Center, at Brody School of Medicine doing combined internal medicine and psychiatry. So to get things started, as you mentioned, we're talking about Risperdone and Palperidone. Risperdone is a medication that many listeners have likely heard of or have experienced prescribing. It is the second most common prescribed second-generation antipsychotic on the market currently. It is also the second oldest and second most well-studied of the second-generation antipsychotics. Risperidone is also commonly used due to the multiple different formulations, including regular tablets, long acting injectables, liquid formulations, and even an oral dispersible tablet. Palperidone was discovered later compared with risperidone. And initially in 1996, it was identified due to uh, researchers identifying an active metabolite of risperidone. 9-hydroxyrisperidone. However, palperidone, which is 9-hydroxyrisperidone, got introduced to the market 10 years after its initial discovery. So in 2006, it was available for use. In its pill form, palperidone is prescribed less frequently for maintenance therapy. However, its benefits to the marketplace and reasons for its list of the World Health Organization essential medications, is because of the long-acting injectables coming in one-month, three-month, and six-month injection options. This has become by far the most popular long-acting injectable, and it's surpassed the previously most popular long-acting injectable, Halperidol decanoate. And this happened in 2019.
0: All right. And you mentioned that both of these medications belong to the atypical or second generation in a psychotic class. Talk to me a little bit more about the medications as a class and what it means to be different from the first-generation antipsychotics.
1: Certainly. Second-generation antipsychotics were first developed with the creation of clozapine in 1962. However, there was a large gap between clozapine and the next second-generation antipsychotic, which was Risperdone. Risperdone came out in 1993, which was nearly 31 years later. The delay in development came from the fact that clozapine had a very novel mechanism, and the next 30 years of research was related to trying to find another medication which was like clozapine but did not have all the side effects which are commonly associated with clozapine, namely agranulocytosis. Due to their mechanism of action, second-generation antipsychotics do not bind to dopamine receptors as strongly as the first-generation antipsychotics. Yet they are as effective as first-generation antipsychotics in controlling symptoms of uh, psychosis. This can be seen by comparing the inhibitory constants from these medications. The inhibitory constant is defined as the relative binding affinity or functional strength of a drug. In practice, this means that the number relates to the amount of medication needed to block a receptor So a low number means stronger blocking. When we look at haloperidol, which is the most prescribed first-generation antipsychotic, its inhibitory constant on the D2 dopamine receptor is 0.7. This indicates that a very low amount of haloperidol is needed to block the receptor. Risperidone's inhibitory constant on the D2 receptor is 3.57. This means that haloperidol is nearly five times more potent on the dopamine 2 receptor as compared with risperidone. Where second-generation antipsychotics get much of their antipsychotic activity comes from the inhibition of serotonin receptors. On the dopaminergic cell bodies in the brain, there are serotonin receptors that are used as activating control mechanisms. Serotonin in the brain will activate the dopaminergic cell bodies to release dopamine. Thus, inhibiting the serotonin receptor will inhibit the dopamine release. This is again seen by comparing the inhibitory constant, where haloperidol inhibitory constant on the serotonin receptor is around 10,000, while risperidone is 0.17, making risperidone almost 60,000 times more potent at this receptor compared with haloperidol. And why is this important to have different mechanisms? What this does for second-generation antipsychotics is it changes the side effect profile. When initially developing clozapine, the main, th- the main thing was trying to be avoided from the original first-generation antipsychotics was extrapyramidal side effects, which are the number one reason that patients dropped out of the largest studies involving antipsychotics and stopped using the medication as evidenced by the Katie trial, which is one of the largest studies on antipsychotic effectiveness. And it showed that 27% of those who discontinued the study discontinued for extrapyramidal side effects. By using a tighter serotonin binding, the goal would be to lower the extrapyramidal side effects.
0: How about other side effects, such as hyperprolactinemia and gynecomastia?
1: It's interesting that you bring that up, Dr. Stanley, because there has been multiple lawsuits that have been filed against the parent company for Risperdone, which is Johnson & Johnson, essentially saying that they downplayed or uh, minimized the, the possible uh, claims or the, the risk which was being claimed um, to be associated with Risperdone and its side effect profile of gynecomastia. So far, settlements have been awarded against them for nearly $8 billion, and that's pretty significant. In terms of the actual risk of gynecomastia, the largest survey study of the chances of risperidone causing gynecomastia found that most at-risk groups were males aged 15 to 25, that they were, but however, there was only a 0.38% chance of developing gynecomastia with long-term use. However, this was four times greater than non-risperidone using population. The mechanism of this side effect comes from the dopamine blockade that is caused in the tubero tract of the hypothalamus, which reverses the dopamine inhibition of prolactin coming from the anterior pituitary, causing increased prolactin production. In most patients taking risperidone, there will be some increase in prolactin, but that does not necessarily equate to side effects. OK. And what are some of the more common side effects? So in order for us to really talk about that fully, we need to kind of understand some of the other receptors that risperidone and palperidone both act upon. So with inhibition of the alpha-1 receptors, you can have orthostatic hypotension and sedation. Additionally, risperidone works on histamine H1 receptors, which is responsible for the drowsiness and some of the weight gain that comes from this medication as well. There is also increased risk for diabetes and dyslipidemia as well as an increased risk of sexual side effects. Lastly, there are some very common or relatively common side effects, including nausea, constipation, tachycardia, headache, and dizziness, which may be seen in patients taking either risperidone or palperidone. We also talked earlier about the risk of extrapyramidal side effects, and we discussed how because of the different mechanisms of action, there would be associated less risk of extrapyramidal side effects. While this did play out in earlier studies, however, recent studies have not necessarily shown that second-generation antipsychotics actually confer any decreased risk for extrapyramidal side effects as compared with the first-generation antipsychotics. And so
0: far, we've talked about the medications
1: and their side effects. Now let's talk about how we would actually use the medications in clinical practice. Certainly, the labeled FDA indications are for schizophrenia, schizophrenia maintenance, acute mania related to bipolar disorder, autism related irritability in children, and for bipolar maintenance. The only second generation antipsychotics with more FDA indications are quetiapine. However, risperidone also has a lot of off-label uses, including bipolar depression, agitation, and aggression associated with dementia, delusional disorder, Huntington's disease-related chorea, major depressive disorder, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and Tourette syndrome. And tell me about the dosing for the most common disorders. Risperdone will start with twice-daily dosing, usually at 1 to 2 milligrams over 24 hours in Divided doses. So, for example, 0.5 milligrams twice daily is a common starting dose for a patient who is antipsychotic naive. For patients who are suffering from over sedation, the medication can be dosed more at night as opposed to the, you know, maybe using a little bit less during the daytime dose and shifting more of the dose to nighttime. Usually, when dosing in the non acute setting, we want to assess the effects for up to a week as this is how long you are going to take to see a lot of the side effects, and some of the full effects of Risperidone may take a little bit longer to occur, but the side effects is what you're most concerned about initially. Generally speaking, you do not want to dose Risperidone greater than six to eight milligrams a day. Palperidone is usually dosed once per day, and the starting dose is typically around six milligrams, although three milligrams may be enough to start in some patients particularly those that are antipsychotic-naive. And the maximum dose would be 12 grams per day.
0: What are some of the advantages of risperidone and palperidone over other second-generation antipsychotics?
1: For starters, risperidone has multiple different formulations. Just to kind of recap, it comes in regular tablets, long-acting injectables, liquid formulations, and there even is an oral dissolvable tablet. So this allows for more versatility relative to the different clinical settings with which it may be used. One of the biggest benefit when starting somebody on Risperidone is the fact that it is related so closely to palperidone. Since medication compliance is such a problem in patients with schizophrenia, transition to a long-acting injectable is recommended for many patients. After starting Risperidone and making sure that the patient is not sensitive to it or having side effects from it, a switch from Risperidone to Palperidone long-acting injectable formulation is a relatively simple conversion. Then Palperidone, which has a broad range of long-acting injectable options, including one month, three month, and six month, all being available on the market right now is probably one of the better options for maintenance therapy in schizophrenia. Additionally, it is relatively easy to dose having a standard loading dose for all of these options, and then having multiple different dosing options that can relate to different levels of risperdone oral would make it a very easy transition to make to the palperidone long-acting injectable. And tell me a little
0: bit more about the long-acting injectables available for these two medications.
1: Both Risperdone and Palperidone do have long-acting injectable formulations. However, the Palperidone injectables are more commonly used. This is most likely related to the frequency of dosing, which was mentioned earlier as one-month, three-month, and six-month options for Palperidone. The Risperdone, Long-acting injectable did debut on the market eight years prior to Palperidone, however, and it comes in Risperidone Consta every two weeks. This was the initial discovery, and later a four-week Risperidone perceris was introduced to the market. Palperidone Sustenna is a one-month injection and ended up becoming the most commonly used long-acting injectable surpassing haloperidol decanoid in 2019. Since then, there is continued improvements upon this with Invega or palperidone trenza, which is a three month formulation. And even this year in 2022, we had the release of Invega or palperidone half Ura, which is appropriately named for lasting a whole half year at six months. The benefits of these multiple-month injections are clear for patients and can help increase medication compliance.
0: Thanks, Dr. Miller, for giving us so much information on those two medications. Um, I know that its uh, they're very commonly used and good to know more about them.
1: In summation, both Risperidone and Palperidone are second-generation antipsychotics, which are commonly used likely due to the fact that they both have long-acting injectable formulations. And those long-acting injectable formulations can be used for the following labeled FDA indications, including schizophrenia, schizophrenia maintenance, acute mania related to bipolar disorder, autism-related irritability in children, and bipolar maintenance. Thank you very much.